Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Lawrence Lamb is the founder and managing director of Luminary Investment Management, a boutique funds management business that invests solely in founder-run companies. Despite launching his fund in 2017, Lawrence has kept a low profile, so I'm very glad I got this opportunity to speak with him. Lawrence is one of the brightest young thinkers I've come across. He is at ease blending mathematics, actuarial science, law, technology, and investing into one concise thought and process. In this video and audio episode, Lawrence and I talk about his experience living with an entrepreneurial father, investment banking, inequality, valuation, turnarounds, and of course, the founder spirit. This is an episode I'll listen to again, at least a few times. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Lawrence Lamb of Luminary Investment Management. Lawrence, thanks for joining me on the show, mate. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me. Uh, have you listened to many episodes before? Yes, I've seen a few. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, so no, you know what to expect. Yep. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, I think you bring a lot of different, uh, we're just talking off air, I think you bring a lot of different perspectives to how we can think about not only investing, but funds management, finance industry, um, philosophy, many different things. So this is going to be a really um, wide-ranging conversation. We're going to go deep on some points. We're also going to kind of tie them all together between the way you've shaped your fund, the way you invest, and how, I guess, that plays out in your personal life and your, your career so far. As you know, what we do at the start is we talk about kind of like your upbringing, mm. um, how that shaped who you are as an investor. So uh, we've, we've spoken before. Um, I know that there's, some, uh, there's a business in the family, and, and, you, and you talk to that a bit. So why don't I just throw it over to you? Tell us about yourself, where you grew up, and... Who, if anyone, was kind of that inspiration towards investing in finance? Yeah, sure. I've always been surrounded by business. Uh, and in fact, the, one of the very first things that I remember uh, learning about from my dad was when he said to me, he sat me down as a young child and he said to me, Lawrence, <laughs> don't ever <laughs> invest in stocks. <laughs> and, okay. and there's a bit of background to that yeah. uh, from my dad. But... Um, what, what do you do when you're a child and you get told not to do something? Yeah, yeah you go and do it. <laughs> you go and do it. Yeah. Uh, well, I assure you that if I could navigate the paperwork back then, yeah. I would have invested in some stocks. <laughs> but alas, um, that was the very first time I came across the concept of investing. The idea that you could put money somewhere just by pure decision-making and choice, and that money would get you more money. Mm-hmm. And that was a fascinating introduction to that concept for me. Yep. Uh, if I... Uh, look back and outline the background um, to that comment. My dad really, he blew himself up uh, on the Hong Kong stock market in the oh, late right. 70s. Um, so for him, uh, and mind you, he was more of a speculator than an investor. Mm-hmm. So for him, um, he had some scars to go through. Yeah. So through my childhood, I grew up uh, watching my dad start from scratch here. 
um, he blew himself up so bad that he had to really leave Hong Kong and come to Australia to start a new life. Right. And that's what he did um, from, from rock bottom, yeah. um, working multiple jobs. Uh, he gradually worked his way up in banking uh, for HSBC and the Westpac. And then he started his own mortgage broking firm, which he ran very successfully and grew very successfully over 20-odd years. Right. Um, so he's retired now. But uh, for me, my childhood consisted of uh, the backyard really being a, a meeting room for my dad, hmm. um, him getting, uh, using the cordless, the home cordless phone as his business phone at the very beginning, uh, and then driving around after hours when his clients would finish work and meeting up with them. Um, yeah, right. So that was, that was being immersed in that environment really taught me what it takes to be a founder. Uh, what it takes and the qualities involved in growing a business over a very long period of time. Mm. So when I reflect back now, uh, as I've worked uh, in government, in consulting, in investment banking, uh, those same qualities keep resonating again and again. Uh, working with so many different companies, you get to see what is it that makes some companies successful and what are those attributes that lead to mediocre or unsuccessful companies a lot of those qualities are from those principles and the fundamentals that my dad, I saw my dad implement through his business. Um, drive, determination, hard work, but then later on, the strategy, the thinking behind how you would grow a business over a long period of time. I think for all investors, uh, it is critical that you understand what it is like to run a company manage a business, operate a business, own a business, in order for you to truly be able to appreciate if someone else is doing a good job. Mm. I mean, as an investor, we are picking companies run by people. You must first learn how to run a company yourself before you can make judgment on others. Mm. That's something we see a lot, right? You see analysts who are obsessive for one reason or another about what's going on with this quarter, last quarter, this half, this year even. Mm. Um, and you often wonder, or at least I often wonder when I'm sitting on these calls and they're asking about take rates and margins. It's obviously important for their job, but as an investor, I think you need to differentiate between investor and analyst, right? Sometimes it's two different hats completely. How about then, so that's kind of like your formative, you, you, you're exposed to that at home. How about mm. then how that plays out academically? Because, you know, I think just a quick glance of your your work history or your LinkedIn profile would reveal that maybe you're, you're pretty good at mathematics. Yeah, that was my first sort of... I yeah. mean, as a kid, uh, as with anything in life, success breeds confidence and confidence breeds success. And as a kid, uh, I was good at really two main things that spring to mind, basketball and, and maths. Uh, <laughs> those were my strengths and certainly helped to... Uh, that, that was the direction that I was... Primary school through to high school, that was the direction I wanted to head in. Mm -hmm. Plus, my, my parents always emphasised to me the importance of education. So I was pretty self-motivated, uh, pretty, pretty um, reliant on myself in terms of my studies. I did quite well in school and ended up at university doing something that was a combination of mathematics uh, and a field that interested me more was actually probability. So mathematics, probability and business, which was actuarial science, um, yeah. which is the study of, uh, in its core, insurance mathematics or insurance pricing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. So did you find that challenging at 
uni? Yeah, it's a very challenging subject. Uh, for me, the mathematics was really interesting because you spent a lot of time looking at uh, not only the, the, the black and white answer, but the study of probabilities involves uncertain outcomes. Mm. Uh, and that is what has interested me more. The fact that you can have an expected outcome and you can position yourself in a way that can maximise your returns uh, through a framework, um, but it's not guaranteed. Yeah. And in a way that later down the track led to my interest in, in investing, mm. which is much the same concept. So you, you mentioned um, you know, confidence breeds success. Um, how about now that you look back on it, getting into quite a prestigious university, studying actuarial science is, is no easy feat. Did what you see in your dad day-to-day, um, you know, running a business, working after hours, that hard work, that ethic, um, did, did, did that rub off on you academically? Like I imagine you, you worked quite hard mm. to, to get into those courses and those programs. Yeah, I, I think the, in, subconsciously it rubbed off on me. My dad is a very driven person. He's a perfectionist and he has uh, everything he does uh, he's got a very high standard for. Mm. So that probably rubbed off on me in terms of my studies and I remember even simple tasks around the home, you know, washing the car with my dad. If I didn't do it right, <laughs> you would feel the spittle on your face and he would let you know. I mean, he is, he is the Gordon Ramsay of... The, the, uh, um, but, and these days, you know, we have some very robust dinner table discussions about business. Yeah. We're cut from the same cloth, but... You know, if he's Gordon Ramsay, I'm, I'm Marco Pierre White. You know, we're, we're cut from the same cloth, but we both have equally different but high standards. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that, and I can see that in the way you built the business too, which we'll get to in a minute. But mm. it kind of, I can see how that has rubbed off on you in a, in a really impressive way. How about then, continuing on the, the, the theme of study, mm. um, I can see you've gone on and you've, you know, we'll get to the career aspect of it in a minute, but you've studied a bit more. You've studied Masters of Finance and You've done some other study there. Um, so was the plan while you're at uni to get into finance and investing or was, was that, did that come later? It was to get into finance. I never really thought about investing until much later. Oh, right. Uh, for me, uh, I, I wanted to get into finance and business in general. And the way to get into that is to be able to speak the language. And the language of finance, business, is... Uh, Many languages, really. Uh, and for me, it's mathematics is one thing, mm-hmm. which also leads into accounting, yep. economics, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of base foundational um, uh, skill sets. Then you have uh, the next level for me was understanding the behavioral side of finance, the market psychology, and that's what the masters gave me. The appreciation for risk management and how to, uh, what the industry trends are with compliance, building mm-hmm. a, a solid foundation. And, and then thirdly, lastly, in order to um, communicate in the language of business, you need to know the rules. Uh, and that's where my, my uh, corporations and securities law degree comes in, yeah. where you must know the, the rules in order to play the game. Yeah. So is that, like, I feel like this is very deliberate of you to study the way that you did. Would you, would you say that you were more deliberate in where you wanted to take your academics? Uh, not in a conscious sense. Yeah. I mean, the, certainly the legal degree has been driven in part uh, by my wife's influence, who's right. a lawyer herself. 
So that came from her and uh, learning to appreciate that side of thing because in the early days of my development, I was very much quantitative-based. And more and more as I progressed in my studies and through work, you realise that the quantitative side is is one thing, but equally as important is the qualitative side, the behavioural side of business. Mm. Uh, and that's where the legal side of things come in, as well as the, the behavioural market um, market-driven forces. That's mm. where they come in. So having a solid grasp of all those languages helps you to get the big, get the full picture. Yeah, for sure it does. Um, I've heard it once described to me kind of like you need to know the rules of the game and you need to understand the maths, but the qualitative stuff is what goes between the lines. It's what allows you to read between the lines of if you're looking at annual reports, if you're looking at industry data, whatever it might be. Um, you said in a, a, a presentation that you shared with me, which was this long-form presentation at a shareholders conference, uh, you, you said in the one of the slides that you had was that, and it's kind of it really made me pause for thought. You said the first job that you have out of university or school or whatever you're doing is oftentimes the most profound in not only you know where you go with your career and how much money you make and all those types of things, but also in the way that you think. Mm. So you know, I reflected on this and I thought, yeah. Actually, he's right. And then I spoke to my wife and, I was, and she said, she's like, yeah, actually, like it seems obvious, but then you think about it on a deeper level and you think about your personality and how that shapes you. Um, so I'll let you do the explaining of this next part, which comes for you after uni, your first job and kind of how the lessons you've taken from those jobs that you've had over the years. We've spoken off air about this quite a bit, but mm. I'll let you go from here. Yeah. So my first job out of uni was with APRA, the financial regulator of Australia. Um, and as I, as I mentioned, your first job usually is the one that shapes how you see the world. And how I saw the world coming out of APRA was all about risk management. Importantly, what I learned was from an investment point of view, you're looking at risk management of the portfolio of companies, of, of um, how you can minimise volatility in your portfolio. But what I actually learned from APRA was risk management from a business point of view and mm. what you need to implement in a business to ensure that all the risks are mitigated and it sets a solid foundation for the long term. So if I take uh, funds management as an example, um, if you were to set up a funds management business, you would ensure that you had all the regulatory and compliance things ticked off and rock solid before mm. you can even think about going to market and bringing on board investors. Mm. As an example, um, that, that's how I think about and how I see the world, very much around the fundamentals. And, and for anyone that follows basketball out there, I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan, and, <laughs> and, and that's what that club um, teaches with its philosophy, um, fundamentals first before anything else. Yeah, right. So, so I think that's profound. I think if people could pause here, think about the job that they have or they had when they first got out of uni, and then reflect on that. I think that's pretty powerful. But tell us about the next steps. So you've gone from APRA. Um, where did you go next? So APRA was pre, pre-GFC, and uh, it, I liken it to being um, a cop, but there's no criminals around, because <laughs> at that time it was, it was smooth sailing for APRA. And um, ha- However, it would be found out a few years later in the GFC what a good job APRA did. And I think that it's a bit of a goalkeeper's job. What you're doing and the foundation blocks you set for APRA, for any business, uh, 
means that when you are faced with adversity, you can survive it. And that's what we did here in Australia quite well, mm. relative to the rest of the world. When I left APRA, I wanted to get into more of the nitty-gritty of finance, and that's where I joined Deloitte. I joined their derivatives team. Mm -hmm. So effectively looking at uh, consulting for different companies and uh, making sure that the risk, again, risk management that they had in place with their hedges made sense for them as an organisation mm -hmm. and were correctly being valued uh, and, and um, we would often come up with you know, advice about what types of derivatives they should hold. For me, it, it was a great role because it gave me exposure to so many different types of companies, private and public. Mm. And I, it was at Deloitte that I really I finished my master's and I got to really learn to see some traits. And I mentioned uh, to you before the, the qualities of, of companies mm. that, that are successful. At Deloitte, that's exactly what I saw. Yeah. I saw some family-owned companies that thought and behaved very differently to, um, to, to other bigger companies, but were, they were much less successful. Uh, classic example of that is uh, Yellowtail Wines. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're owned by the Casella family and hugely successful, but yet you don't really hear about them too much in the media, but they just plod along and do their thing and very successful and also very long-term in thinking. Mm. How about in terms of culture and the way you felt about being inside Deloitte versus, you know, the business that, that you were looking at day-to-day? like Yellowtail. Mm. How, do you have any takeaways there about culture and, and I guess where you felt, um, you know, culture led to success or didn't and how you fell into that in terms of like your role and your ambitions? That was sort of the inkling uh, and that was the period of time when I started investing myself personally. Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't really formulated any precise uh, investment strategy at that point. Uh, it was really recognised, starting to see some traits, and as you got to see more and more businesses, you, you saw, well, why is, why is that company doing things so differently to, to another? Mm. Um, and when you, th when you take a step back as someone advising them, you think, well, if it was your company, and again, it comes back to my dad's, um, my, my upbringing with my dad, was if it was my dad's business, would I do it like that? And it's sort of that questioning mm. that led me down the path of, well, I can do things better. Uh, and if I could bottle up some of these companies that were private uh, but very successful, if I could bottle that formula up and invest in it, well, I can, mm. I can grow wealth. Yeah, right. So this is, as far as my understanding, this is like where this seed is planted. Um, then why do you then go and start a business um, a few years later? So you thought maybe that's the best expression of my passion for that, like capturing that value? Is mm. that what? Because I, I, we spoke off air that you maybe you could have invested in that um, privately, mm. right? And you could have done that in you know a private company or got some friends and family to put some money together, and you could have mm. started that. Why did you want to build your own? Well, it wasn't actually until later, much later, that I reached the conclusion that's exactly what I wanted to do. Right. Uh, in between that, I actually left to join investment banking, and that's uh, where course, I spent yeah. most of my, my career in investment banking. Yeah. And that time was, was an interesting time as well because it taught me about 
human nature and it broadened my horizons mm. to a global level. So usually in investment banks, they will, you know, they will pay uh, bonuses every year, quite handsome bonuses. Sure. But, um, but uh, you'd often see a disparity because internally you would know which teams were making money, which teams weren't. But you'd, yet you'd see every April, May, you'd see people going off into closed rooms, having discussions. Yeah. Sure enough, you'd know us about the bonus. Uh, and sure enough, when the figures came out, lo and behold, the one that lobbies the hardest for their team <laughs> gets the biggest bonuses for their team. And I'm just sitting back thinking, again, one of those thoughts uh, upon reflection going, why, if I was a shareholder in this global bank, and this is a listed global bank, would I be happy with that outcome? That rather than rewarding the best performance in the bank, I reward the best lobbyist group yeah. in the bank. Uh, and again, uh, something that I look back and I go, well, if I could take the opposite approach, if I could harness that, that drive, that motivation um, as an owner, uh, that can be very powerful. They try to replicate that with a bonus structure in banks. I know it doesn't work. They try to replicate that oftentimes in, in, in the corporate world with uh, long-term incentives and vested shares and things. That doesn't usually work 100% either. Uh, and for me, the conclusion was what works the best if you own the business yourself, if you're actually the founder. Mm. Your name is on the door. Yep. Yeah, if your name is on the logo, <laughs> you know, you, you really do care about the business. Yeah. Um, there are two things that I want to talk about, and it's, it's not really related to investing per se, but it's more um, your pursuits alongside what you're doing um, with the business and, and everything you do now. It's that these two initiatives that you helped co-establish or co-found and, and you worked on, um, one, I believe, is Share the Pie, um, and then you also helped to establish the Future Leaders Forum, and that's for the Australia-China Business Council. Yeah. Can you talk us through, I guess, why you wanted to do that in the first place? Like, yeah. why was it you that had to do that? Yeah. Um, and then, I guess, what it is and, and why that's important to you now? Yeah, I'll start with hashtag share the pie, which is an initiative that we started. Uh, uh, but it, it spun out of the, the um, Committee for Melbourne, which tries to improve the livability of the city. Right. So... But our, so at a philosophical level, uh, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist, I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, before capitalism, there, there were other systems equally valid uh, and equally long-lasting. You know, we talk about um, communist, communism being a system. Yep. We talk, before that, you know, feudal systems. Uh, so for me, and at a philosophical level... Any benefit that you derive as a capitalist in our current system can only be um, sustainable for the long term if everyone benefits to a certain extent. When you start seeing a big divergence uh, in wealth between the rich and the poor, that's when you start seeing some systems break down. So for me, it's about uh, ensuring that a voice is heard for the, the poorer parts of society. Uh, and mind you... I think it is not mutually exclusive. You can be a capitalist, but you can also care about the less wealthy in society. So it's about giving them a voice and being an advocate for them 
to ensure that ultimately everyone is looked after. Everyone benefits to a certain extent in the way we do, in the way the world operates now. So I'm, I'm passionate about that, being a Melbourneian, uh, and even in Sydney when I go there, you, you walk out in the CBD and you see more and more people sleeping on the streets, and it's, it's not great, mm. it, it, even if you're not sleeping there yourself, but just to walk out and see that environment. A classic example also is of San Francisco. I don't know if you've been there, but very wealthy city, right? But equally, uh, just as many homeless people in the street. It's, mm. uh, it's not a good place to live. Yeah. And so do you still pursue this now, this hashtag share the pie? Not so much. We created it. It's running by itself now. We have a partnership with Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, who's running that. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a philosophical endeavour that I find quite rewarding. Mm. How about the mm. Futures Le- Future Leaders Forum? Yeah, that's an that's a Australia-China Business Council subcommittee. And um, from a personal point of view, I'm Australian-born Chinese. So a lot of... We have a huge population here from the migration waves of the 70s and the 80s of, of Asian migrants. It is only now that this huge population of first-generation-born Asian uh, can add so much value to business. And we talk about the trade tensions between Australia, China and the US. Well, right here in this country, we have a group of people that have been educated in Australia, but yet look and understand the culture and speak the language of, of Asia. It's a huge advantage that we have sitting right you know, on, on our bench right now. So my passion for starting this, uh, and I co-founded it with the ACBC, is about bringing these people together, uh, giving them a voice and letting them network uh, to create business value between Australia and China. So is, that you, is it as simple as you have younger you know, entrepreneurial people in Australia matched up with entrepreneurial people in Asia, or is it more so in Australia, the community here, thinking of solutions to problems that probably, you know, they need to be solved. It's more uh, the Australian community here, yeah. but we, what we try to do is link up a lot of Chinese organisations that have offices here in Australia. Uh, we link up with government as well, so with the Chinese embassy, mm-hmm. to try and create those business links. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully one day we'll extend towards, I mean, to extend towards China. We did, we did actually fly someone from Tencent in China down to speak at an event for us and she spoke about what Tencent's doing with AI and, and those sorts of things. So it's a fascinating area for me to be in because I get to contribute to this demographic and I also get to learn about what, what's happening in Australia and China. For sure, as an investor, there's obviously some edge that you can, you can probably sharpen there. There's some perks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk back more about that now. In 2017, my understanding is then you thought – Okay, I've had this, you know, this pretty lucrative career. I've, I've done, I've pursued these initiatives. Um, you know, let's get, let's let's start a managed fund and let's set that up. And normally, when you do this, for people that haven't done it, I've never done it, but I've been close enough to it for for a while to know that there is a good half a dozen to a dozen balls in the air that you're trying to catch and 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 put down smoothly mm. um, when these things take off. And you know, we've got compliance. Administration, custody, uh, like all the licensing stuff. If you choose to go independent, um, then you've got marketing, consultants, research houses. It's like an endless list. Mm. Not only then you've got to build a team, you've got to define your investment philosophy, your process, all these things, right? That come with starting a funds management business. 
I think that looking at what you've done, it's almost like you've taken it in your stride and you've gone, I'll do it one better than what most people do and I'll, I'll add some of my own flair in there. So I'll let you explain the business, mm. why it's important and how you set it up. Yeah, so the business is um, fully vertically integrated and that's, uh, and I describe it in that sense because as, as an investor, you often look at businesses that are vertically integrated and you say, well, that's a really great business model. Um, the long and short of it means is that we in-house as much as we can, including the funds administration part of it. So uh, what it means for our investors is that they can log into a portal, they can get personalised data about their returns, they can see transparently all the fees that are being charged. And that, to me, is one of the core reasons why, uh, you asked me a bit earlier, why I started a fund as to run personal money. Well, part of it is I enjoy the challenge of improving the industry to make it more transparent. Uh, and at the moment, a lot of investors want to understand, well, depending on when I entered a fund, depending on the unit price which was struck at the time, my returns will vary across time, will vary across different investors, even in the same fund, depending on when we entered. Mm. And that is the information that I want to provide my investors mm. and to give that transparency every year with the tax statements, with the performance statements, uh, and, and it's all listed out. If I look back as to what the driving force of that is, it really comes from my dad because he said to me, he said, if you can rely on yourself... And if you can, as much as you can do for your business independently without outsourcing, the better you will be for the long term, mm. the, the, the better placed and the better foundation you have to grow. Uh, and, and that's the fundamental philosophy behind why we've done things our way and, and provided that transparency. Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, you didn't have to do it yourself. You could have outsourced this. It would have been easier. Mm. Um, but you've chosen to, like we've spoken you're not a developer, but you know the maths. Mm. So you can you can write the formulas for the developers to implement and mm. then you can produce this product that is superior to all other products out there. Um, and like you said, you don't have to rely on that. You can automate a lot, uh, which is really good for scalability. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of comes back to that, that software development principle. You move slow to go fast. Mm. And, you know, that might have caused a few hiccups initially, but now you're off the ground, you've got your own AFSL, you've got this fund that's, that's off the ground. Um, so tell us the, like what you have to tell us the name, Luminary, um, yep. what you do, um, like what you're trying to produce for your investors are outcomes. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, Luminary is a global equities investor and we invest in the best founder-led companies in the world. In a nutshell, that's what we do. We're long-only unhedged fund and we aim to deliver returns for our investors that exceed the global benchmark over the long term. Yep. And by long term, I, I mean genuinely long term. Mm. I, I don't mean five years. I mean 10 plus years. Yep. A lot of the business we invest in are generational companies. They've been around granddad handed over to to the son who's handed over to the grandson uh and and that's exactly what the fund does we invest alongside these families yep um we'll get to the the founder focus um we've already touched on it but mm. we'll get to that in a minute um i spoke to you on the phone uh i think it was last week and i, I said you know we talked about the markets as they are at this time and, and i said oh you must have a pretty long holding like uh, time frame and mm. uh, horizon and normally when I speak to fund managers at least some of them 
they can be trading positions intra-month or that week or what have you. And you said to me, I think these were your words, uh, yeah, there are a couple of positions in the portfolio that we might sell in the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's your term yeah. for, for us. Uh, yeah. yeah, we, there's, there's a general, uh, momentum towards very quick trading in the markets and I think the danger of that is that a lot of people get trapped in in a price game so you're really the shorter your horizon the less focused you are on the actual fundamental performance of a company you're not looking at a business you become less and that you, you you become more and more myopic and you look towards the the quarterly numbers that will then dictate a movement in share price mm. And the danger in that is, notwithstanding the fees and the taxes involved in short-termism, is that you end up in a game that's not about true investing, in my opinion. It's about um, guessing, guessing what the market will, re- how the market will react to certain news. Mm. Uh, we're not in the business of that. We're in the business of buying companies. Yeah, um, that's one thing that's often un- underappreciated. Um, by investors, particularly smaller retail investors who don't understand the tax implications of turnover and trading activity uh, because most funds, I don't know of many, they probably someone will probably write in and tell me that I've made a mistake, but I don't know if any that report after tax mm. uh, returns uh, because you know the way the trust structure works, it can be quite convoluted to, to, to report that, but it's definitely something that I'm mindful of. If I ever was to invest in something, you know, tax is the biggest bill that we typically pay each year. So you want to think about that when you, you make decisions. So that's really interesting because um, I, just, I just really like the focus on founders, first and foremost. Um, I also believe that you're quite concentrated in your positions. Yes, we have 15 stocks in the portfolio at the moment and that's probably on the higher side. I mean, the purpose of concentration... Uh, well, if I take a step back, what, what, is, what is the aversion to concentration in general as a as a thought that most people have is it's diversification most people want to be diversified because for them it brings them safety i mean the the yeah. old saying keep don't keep all your eggs in one basket F- my philosophy on diversification isn't based on the number of companies you hold in a portfolio it's not the number of companies it's based on thinking about who your customers are in your portfolio so i'll give you an example if if I hold a German lubricant company in my portfolio and this lubricant company sells, sells lubricant to uh, not only uh, the auto industry, to aviation, to construction, to machinery, to anything that has friction in it that needs to be uh, tempered back, then you have a whole range of customers in a whole huge uh, number of geographies that... that um, the, and, I, and even if you held that one company, would, would that be under-diversified? In, in my opinion, no. It's not the same as holding one, one company that only does one thing. So the way to think about it is not in terms of numbers of companies, but how many customers you have. Where are your customers? What products are they buying from you? One of the things with that, I guess, is that you can only think like that if you as a fund manager and an investor have not convinced your clients or your investors, but you personally, um, I guess, communicate that with them and on the proviso that you're a long-term investor too because if you are that one of those people that might be guessing uh, what the next quarter is going to be or next month or what have you, it's very hard to say, yeah, we had this excess volatility this 
the funds down this month. Mm. Um, but don't worry, stick with us. We think the next quarter is going to be good. Um, you can afford to think, no, this is the business. So that's how we consider risk. You consider operational risks, right? It's much the same way that I think about it. Like I don't necessarily think that volatility is risk. Mm. I don't know if you have an opinion on that. Yeah, volatility is movement in price. R- risk is the price that you'll lose money and you're overpaying for something. They're very different concepts. Uh, just because, and we've seen this as a classic example over the past couple of months, some companies have literally halved in price, and we've invested a lot over the past two months. They've halved in price, but what is what is price? Price is a reflection or the market's reflection of the future value of a business, a perpetual value of the business. To say that coronavirus has uh, slashed the value of a company in perpetuity, by half, for some of those companies, I thought was um, overdone, mm-hmm. and that's why we invested in those. But that's the difference between volatility. When it drops by fifty percent, it's highly volatile. But has when it drops by fifty percent, the risk has actually decreased, mm-hmm. and that's the distinction I see between volatility and, and risk from an investment risk point of view. It's better to invest when uh, something is halved in price. Mm-hmm. Assuming, of course, it's a solid company. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I guess it's too easy for me to ask why the founder focus because we've talked about it already. <laughs> but I guess it's, it's an important question. Um, one of the lines from a recent write-up you've done, which I'll put in the show notes, was, um, you know, we are invested alongside a founder who has just as much to gain, if not more, and that gives us a strong foundation of confidence. That's just one of the lines that I've pulled from this. Um, and you say that there are plenty of other criteria that must be addressed before you consider a company worth their investment, but you say that that's a good place to start your search. Yes. So why is that a good place to start your search other than what we've, I guess, covered? Yeah, we've covered you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the fundamental difference between founder-led companies and non-founder-led. Uh, I see a huge benefit when uh, the three main stakeholders in any company are fully aligned. It's the it's the, the the board of directors, the shareholders, and management. Mm-hmm. If they are one person or one entity or one family that has influence over the whole business, then that is a very solid prerequisite um, to begin your, your stock analysis mm-hmm. because it tells you that this company cares and assuming the, the of course, then you, you look at the financials, you look at the market, you look at the competitors, but as a starting point, to invest alongside someone who, as Warren Buffett puts it, eats their own cooking is a, a great place to start. Uh, for, for us, um, when we look at companies as a fund, you're, you're always considering conflicts of interest. And at the end of the day, when uh, for founder-led companies, you can significantly reduce that risk if you know the alignment is there. And that's what founder-led companies are. At the very least, you have alignment with mm-hmm. them. So if you are a smaller investor in one of these large blue chip companies, mm. what's the difference? Like, is there anything different that you – is there a different approach that you take to looking at alignment at the board level versus the management level? My, at, a, at a superficial level, I, I look at uh, if they are oh, – how vested they are. So there's a there's a company that I've looked at recently, um, which is a founder-led company. A lot of people won't know is Marriott. 
hotels. It's, yep. it, it owns a huge array of brands, but it's a founder-led company, still run to this day by a 90-year-old uh, J.W. Marriott Jr. And, uh, and um, now they are professionally managed by a professional CEO. Doesn't hold the Marriott surname, but if you look at the... Um, this CEO and what he's done over a period of about 30 years since the, he's known the Marriott family, he behaves almost like an owner. Uh, he, he doesn't sell his shares when he gets vested shares. Uh, he keeps them. Um, and he, he's been in there for a very long period of time, almost to the point where he is family. Mm. So if you don't get comfort by just looking at the surname and checking that the, it's, <laughs> the, the director is the CEO who's the founder... Well, then there's little things like that that give you a clue as to um, what someone's true intentions are. Yeah, we, we, we often see that, right? You often see that there's a name and there's a title, co-founder or founder, that's somewhere between the management level and the board. Um, as an investor, you, you probably you know, feel a few butterflies. You think that's pretty good. Mm. Um, but what's the difference between a good founder and a great founder, like in terms of you know incentives and alignments, one thing. But what else do you look at? Like, is it track record? Is there other things that you look at? If I break it down to its core, there's probably three things that separate an exceptional founder with an average or mediocre founder. Firstly, it's it's long termism. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to, and mind you, a lot of pretty much every company in the world starts off being founder led. So. There are plenty of founder-led companies. But what separates is long-termism. Um, to an extent, founders that demonstrate they know what they don't know. And thirdly, above all else, reputation. And I say reputation and not specifically not marketing. So if I can give you an example of a, um, of, of a good founder-led company, well... It's someone that cares so much about their reputation that they have their name mm-hmm. as part of the business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I can think of <laughs> um, and, and their focus day-to-day is not on promoting themselves um, for the short term. Uh, and, th- and sometimes you end up seeing a lot of people promoting a company for a short, short term so they can effectively sell down. Mm. Uh, and usually they call this the what's the liquidity event that will happen, right? Yeah. And, and that's what you don't want to see, that sort of mentality. Um, and there's often people that describe founders as, oh, they're great at starting a company, but whether or not they can sustain that and grow that and, and mm. turn it into a huge enterprise is a different story. Well, I, I disagree with that because if you look at the biggest companies in the world right now, the top four or five, most of them are founder-led companies. Mm. And what it requires is someone at the top who knows what they don't know. So there's many ways to bring on board talent without you giving up the influence and your vision over the company. You can bring on board third-party consultants, you can hire professional managers to help you, and you can build a team around you that covers off on your your blind spots. Mm. And that's what you want to see. You want to see someone with that sort of awareness mm. yeah there's a few things there sometimes we we say that you know this, this kind of a venture capital thing but you you look for 
if you have co-founders, you look for a technical co-founder, look for a hustler, and you, you look for someone that knows design or, or, or marketing and that type of thing. So like you can you can think of the skill set there, um, and I think it, my personal take is that it's appropriate that you do recognise your limitations. We talked off air about having a dream team, yep. right? Having a dream team in a small business, and that's kind of like what I work towards, um, and and having people to fill that. Um, you mentioned another thing, um, which is the founder's spirit. Uh, is there any examples that I guess encapsulate that idea, <laughs> that principle? My idea of founder's spirit is uh, is my dad. Yep. I think he encapsulates the, the uncompromising uh, standard that he has for certain things. And we see that in manifest in other companies. I mean, Apple's a big example, Steve Jobs, and his unrelenting vision for product design, right, for example. Um, but it can manifest in different ways with different people. I mean, everyone has their own style to, to managing a company. Uh, I think from an investing point of view, it's more so that if you can see those qualities and traits, they may not be presented in exactly the same way. You don't want the same type of person. But if you can see that happening and the alignment is there, that, that's where it's, you, you should delve in more and, and read all the annual reports and read the, the narrative that, um, that these founders are talking about. And if possible, you go and meet them. So an example of that is um, a different style of, of founder is a company that we invested in, a, a Japanese company. Uh, um, they were effectively three guys that were working in a printing company. And uh, myself, working for a, having worked for a Japanese investment bank, you're familiar with the corporate culture there. Sometimes it can, especially back then, probably 30 years ago, it can be quite um, bureaucratic it can be quite hierarchical. Yeah. So these three guys approached uh, their boss and they said, well, uh, um, I know we're printing catalogues out for our clients at the moment, you know, thick books of product, uh, usually in sort of the, the food industry kind of food products. And they're printing them for their clients who would then take them to their, their uh, who's the wholesaler, who would then take them to the shops and try and sell product. And they said, well, why don't we put this on computer? Why don't we make this into a database? And the boss said, no, I'm not, not interested. You know, we're doing things how we do. We're traditional. <laughs> so these three guys spun off a, a company, and that was 30 years ago. It took them 10 years to really dominate that food space, uh, and now they're moving into small personal goods, into pharmaceutical products, into homewares and things. And, and when, I, when I spoke to the CFO, who's one of the co-founders, what really resonated with me was, uh, again, that long-term focus. The way he spoke about the business was that, you know, we have no real intention of selling. What we, we enjoy what we do. We have enough money, all of us individually, and we, we enjoy the challenge of, of growing this for as long as we possibly can. So... A different style of founders, but nonetheless just as effective. Mm. Again, you, you come back to the long-termism, um, and I, I just find that, I guess I just have to pause for thought on that because not enough people think decades, right? You said a decade to you know, do well in, in one segment. Uh, I think if you ask an investor, you know, <laughs> it's a decade. This is going to take a decade. Uh, that would just be, okay, uh, I'm out of here. <laughs> so how about, um, like from a practical point of view, when it comes to 
uh, your research process um, going from you know a pretty big universe, I imagine globally, then distilling that down and, and I guess how many companies do you you follow now from that list? I start at the the absolute top level um, and so there are about thirty five thousand listed stocks on the world's major major stock exchanges around the world mm-hmm. at any one time thirty five thousand from that uh, I get data on each listed company uh, for the past fifteen years and I eyeball each one I go through each one it's an annual process that I go through and I'm uh, and I'm looking for certain traits such as uh, Conservative use of debt, ability to grow cash flow and revenue over time, over a consistent period of time, uh, good margins. Uh, and oftentimes when I spot these companies, they're, they're quite rare, yep. but when you spot them, you actually find out that they are indeed founder-led in some way. You have to do a lot of digging around who the holding, holding uh, entities are mm. and you have to look through that. But oftentimes, companies that can grow over a long term and can compound often are quite conservative with their use of debt as well. Uh, And why is that? Well, because they own the whole thing or most of it, they're not under pressure to have to, you know, stretch the balance sheet and be aggressive in business Mm -hmm. for for the short term. They're thinking longer term. So it manifests itself actually in the numbers. So... Uh, I start with that process, and from there you might end up with a thousand or so companies. But I'm drilling down even further um, from after that point in time to a qualitative level. So I come up with a short list. Uh, on my short list at the moment, it's probably about 100, 200 stocks mm-hmm. at any one time. And as with the game of investing, you, you're really just sitting there waiting for a good time to buy, and you're stalking these companies. And that's what we did two months ago during um, the peak of, of the crisis, everyone was panicking and selling. And these companies that I've been watching for so long were finally um, available to be bought into at a reasonable price. Mm. Did, and so were you under-invested or, like, or not under-invested, but were you, did you, are you quite comfortable keeping a lot of dry powder? We did, we did coming in, into the, the coronavirus. Um, I, I had a sense, and you can... T- if you look at valuations over a very, very long period of time, so I'm, by long, very long I mean not three to five years, I mean 10, 15 years, you can see a trend in valuation levels for individual companies, so historically just looking at themselves, and also compared to the peer group. And when I was looking at that late last year, I thought, well, it's safer. Uh, you know, no one could have predicted the coronavirus, but... On balance, for me, it was safer to have more cash than less, and that's that's what we did. And mm. now we're you know, 1.6 times invested in the market compared to the start of the year. Yeah, right. uh, and I describe it as letting the sales out, because when the economy picks up, then you'll get you'll get the pickup as well. Yeah, right. Speaking of valuation and being that, I guess having that maths and brain, if you like. How do you go about that? Um, do you have you ever put a different flair on conventional models, or are you quite comfortable with discounted cash flow and all the different types of models that we historically have used? I've used a lot of discounted cash flow in my career, and I'm not a huge fan of it. I, I think that it it muddles the past with the future. You're you're looking at previous projections and then extrapolating that out. 
And we all know that is never true in reality. I mean, it gives you a reasonable basis for assumption, but it's never true. So the way I look at valuation is really around looking at the base company at an asset value first, a balance sheet first, then you look at you look at what is the worst case scenario. If this company was to sell down and liquidate, what is it worth today? If the company is of decent value, then you can start looking at their profit and loss statement. And even then when I look at it, I don't make any assumptions about future growth. In fact, I assume, even if they have demonstrated growth, I assume that the, the valuation, they, the, the, the numbers they have now, the earnings, will continue flat for the, for the future. Hmm. That will give you a little bit of a, um, an additional amount of valuation if it is a good company because it means that they're earning more than what the assets are worth. The, the returns on their assets are greater than the, the value of the assets. Yeah. Then um, to separate, to clearly delineate between what is reality and what is um, blue sky assumption, the last part of the valuation involves looking at what would be a reasonable growth assumption on top. And it's just a pure growth assumption on top of the, the, the um, flatline analysis that I've just done. Okay. And if you can buy a company and not pay much for the, the blue sky, then you're doing well. Mm. I mean, it's possible, definitely possible now uh, in this environment but say last year or the year before or, or even previous five years to that, it would have been quite hard to find a company and to get a good value on growth. Mm. Did you, have you drawn any inspiration from anyone in particular with regards to that framework for modelling and investing or is it kind of something from the investment bank slash you know, study and earlier life? Yeah, I read a lot of academic papers um, and, and I read a lot of... Uh, Bruce Greenwald. I, I, I think, say, yeah, yeah, I think he he's got a very sensible way of doing things, um, and yeah, there's a few thought leaders in the space, but ultimately, valuation is an art form, uh, and as strong quantitatively as I am, a, a lot of my focus more as I've evolved as an investor is more geared towards the qualitative side, mm. actually. So the the quantitative gives you that foundation, but whether you actually invest in a stock is not based on spreadsheets. Mm. It's, it's based on the qualitative factors and the, the competition, the moat they have, the market outlook. Mm. How about then, um, you know, when you use valuation as, I guess, a guide for sell decisions? We talked about um, holding periods before. Mm. Do you, like some, and it's, I guess, horses for courses, do you, I'm guessing the answer is no to this, by the way, uh, that <laughs> you don't let the valuation tail wag the dog insofar as holding periods, or am I, am I wrong? Do you sell, you know, you've got a valuation target, and then as soon as it hits that, you trim or you're out? I go into any position thinking that, you know, we're investing alongside the, the founders and we're long-lost family and we're just <laughs> staking a claim in the, in the business. That's the base assumption and having said that, the the opportunity that has come up over the past few months with the coronavirus is slightly different. And this is where it pays to be a little bit flexible as an investor. So there have been some uh, short-term opportunities where you go into it thinking, yes, I can see that this is just discounted because of the coronavirus and because of the industry this company is in. 
And so you go into those investments thinking, yep, after two, three years, you're probably going to sell when the price recovers to, a, to an extent. And then you can recycle that capital into something else that's going to compound over the long mm. term. So, so for me, it's a distinct uh, delineation before you make that investment. Yeah. How about, and this is just a kind of like as an aside, the, the fund is unhedged. So from a currency point of view, you've got that derivatives background. Why did you consciously make it unhedged? It's an opportunity. I think FX is, uh, is a, no doubt can influence the, the performance of a portfolio to a great extent, being a global investor. But if you overlay the macro um, setting that we're in now, and a lot of people are arguing that there will be, in the short and medium term, a devaluation of the Aussie dollar, potentially. Um, and, and that means if you're holding global assets in foreign currencies and they get revalued back into Aussie dollars, you pick up a benefit. Mm. The challenge there is to find opportunities to invest overseas when the Aussie dollar is so weak. And what I mean by that is uh, looking, to, so this is an actual opportunity that you can look at, is looking at currencies where the Aussie dollar is relatively strong. And for me, in the past year or two, that's been Scandinavia. Um, the Swedish krona, uh, the Norwegian krone have been weak, relatively speaking, relative to the Aussie. Yet these are um, very strong economies and very strong uh, countries. Mm. So... If you can enter into those countries, buy when the Aussie is strong, and if over the long term, as currencies are, they it, they wash out, then you pick up again on on the on the flip side when the Aussie is weaker. Mm. So, from a portfolio perspective, I don't see currency as a risk. I see it more as an opportunity. Uh, but we don't. It's it's not a primary opportunity. It's not, it's a nice to have. It's a yeah. it's a side dish that you have. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the one kind of topical area I wanted to get into with you was around the idea of turnaround plays. And I haven't come across too many good frameworks for thinking about what is a turnaround and what is a dumpster fire that you should avoid, right? <laughs> I just think, I think you know, we, we've heard that phrase, turnarounds seldom turn. I think maybe it was Buffett that coined that one. But... Yeah. Um, you did a presentation and I and I listened to it and watched it and I just thought that's just really intuitive and it makes sense. And there was a particular data point in there about founders during turnarounds, which I'd never heard before and I thought that was fascinating. So I might just um, throw that over to you to explain, I guess, the, the idea and the framework behind it. Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, certainly turnarounds are a difficult game to play. It's pretty advanced level. Um, but there's been a lot of research around what factors contribute to successful turnarounds and what, what, what factors lead to turnaround failure. For the most part, most turnarounds are too far gone. So they, to the, to the extent that oh, turnarounds don't turn. Yes, to a certain extent. However, if you can invest in a turnaround that can be turned around, uh, you can have a huge amount of success in, in terms of compounding. So the things that um, the research showed was particularly with founder-led companies, it's that they showed uh, a significant amount of outperformance and being able to turn things around compared to non-founder-led. And when you drill down into it, and we've got one or two companies in our portfolio that have been turned around by, by entrepreneurs and founders, 
it comes down to several key factors. When you're in turnaround mode, you're in danger. It's not the time for bureaucracy. It's time for someone to come in who's fully aligned at the hip pocket and can make decisions quickly. And, and that means from a, from a corporate governance point of view, a smaller board. So typically on a, a, a multinational company, you'll see 10 plus people, you know, the optimal size for a board is usually five to six people in this situation. Uh, and that, that ensures you can make very quick, sharp decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing um, that you want to ensure is that a company isn't just cost-cutting just to, to try to survive. So an example of that is um, companies uh, – let, let's take Apple, for example. I mean, in, in 96, Steve Jobs came back. As the, he, he was ousted and then he came back and he turned that company around. And he turned that company around not by cost-cutting, not by cutting staff, but by actually fundamentally taking a, an aggressive mindset. He was looking to grow. He was looking to expand product and change what products Apple was selling. And that's the type of mentality you need to grow out of a turnaround, not not so much to just to be more conservative. And cost cut or something like that. And you're just waiting there as a sitting duck. Mm. And, the, and, and so, yeah, those are the core components to, to successful turnaround. Uh, and, and more often than not, it's usually a founder or someone that has bought a significant part of the business that, that can affect this change. Yeah, you've got one piece of um, – one data point which I pulled from something that you've done and said – uh, there's a 24% increase in turnaround success with founders. So that's, I mean, that's something tangible that people can grab onto and think, yes, it's, you know, it's demonstrable. There's a, there's a, tra- there's, there's a track record for founders here that, have, you know, they've proven their ability for one reason or another. Maybe I'd say maybe it's that founder spirit mm. we come back to. Um, Lawrence, as we come to the back of this, I think people are going to listen to this and be like, I really want to hear more of what you've got to say. I know I do. So um, as I always ask, is, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? On our website, luminaryinvest.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you'll, you'll make that available to people. Yeah, for sure. I encourage people to subscribe. I write occasionally for magazines. And if you're interested, I put out my thoughts and learnings as, as all investors do, evolve over time and evolve your, your style of investing. Mm. But um, yeah, I think that uh, that's the best way to connect. Yeah. I also found out you're on Twitter. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, passively. <laughs> okay. <laughs> passively. Yeah. One of the lurkers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really use it that much. Yeah. Um, I'd rather just email yeah, uh, people sure. that are interested. Yeah, great. Okay, yeah. I'll put all the links in the show notes. And the last question, um, which I'm fascinated to hear your answer to, which is if you could go get back in time, tell yourself one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? Beginner's mindset. I think it's important to... Uh, no matter where you are in your your learning journey, to have that mindset of every day is new, every day is fresh. Don't don't make an assumption uh, that you know everything, because as as investors, it pays to be open minded and have that potential that uh, there's a there's a chance to learn here. Uh, and what does Warren Buffett say? He says, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So the more you can 
harness that beginner's mindset, the better placed you are to to learn and to evolve. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful uh, lesson for people to take away from this conversation, mate. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Thanks.